up, Greg? Hello, welcome to today, this week's, this week's episode of Juicing the Big Screen. Uh, movies discussion podcast brought to you by Juicing the Numbers. Uh, I am half of our review panel, Joshua Tracy. And I, Cannes Film Festival winner, Corbin Heller. <laughs> what, are we just lying now? Yeah, uh, just one of those things. Who's going to prove me wrong? Uh, the review board at there, the the judges at at Con. Uh, you're right. So I didn't yeah. win Con Film Festival, but I did win the Crying Monkey Award. That's a that's a reference from a movie, but you know what? That's fine. You don't get it. What movie, movie is that from? Uh, Tropic Thunder. Oh my God! All right, all right. I recall this now. Yeah, I forgot the name of the movie, but it's the one with. You know, Robert Downey Jr. and Topher Grace being like the two The monks. two butt-fucking monks, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that they fuck with like rosary beads and stuff. Uh, as, we, as we should be on that care. movie at some point, just because that's such a great movie. Well, hey, you have full leverage to pick that whenever you feel like it. Well, I already picked my movie for this week, so maybe next week. I'll add it to the list. Yeah, I'll keep my fingers crossed. Um... <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this week we are talking about Patton and Mystic River. Corbin, where do you want to start? I would love to start with Mystic River. All right, uh, then let's get into it. 2003's Mystic River, directed by Clint Eastwood and screenplay by Brian Helgeland, based on the Dennis Lehane novel starring Sean Penn, Tim Robbins, and Kevin Bacon. Um this film won two Oscars on the back of six nominations. It won for Best Actor in a Leading Role for Sean Penn and Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Tim Robbins. It was also nominated for Best Picture for Robert, Lo Robert Lorenz, Judy Holt, and Clint Eastwood for Best Actress in a Supporting Role for Marcia Gay Harden, Best Director for Clint Eastwood, and Best Writing Adapted Screenplay for Brian Helgeland. Uh, it had an estimated budget of... Where is it? Uh, twenty-five million dollars. Wow. Okay. Whoa. A lot of act. I guess a lot of big no name offense. actors. Yeah, I guess that would make the most sense. But like, still, damn, where else would you spend that money? I can't imagine what else they would have spent that money on. All this movie was just those actors. It has to be those actors. Um, yeah. Unless they like built that section of the city just to film those streets. I have no. Which idea. wouldn't even make sense. Uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, cumulative worldwide gross of $156.5 million, so definitely a success. Um, it Its tagline, as this is one of our favorite things to do, is we bury our sins, we wash them clean. Um, that doesn't make sense. No, we, I, we I bury we our sins, we wash them the clean. That, and it, that is just bad. Did not work. Yeah, no, that, that doesn't make any sense. Um, the movie is is about uh, these three childhood friends um, who are all three on different ends of one of their daughters being murdered, and the mystery and uh, criminal investigation to who did it. Um, yeah. So, Corwin, what did you think of Mystic River? Um, so this was actually pretty... It was a pretty nice situation for watching this because I had seen Mystic River um, oh, a couple of years ago. It was a movie I knew I enjoyed. You know, I was gonna pick it at 
last week to watch it again. Uh, Josh beat me to it. Um, but I also watched it with, uh, you know, lady friends who had never seen it before. And being able to kind of piece together the story after not really remembering, you know, the details, the twists, the turns, you know, how it went down. You know, I really didn't remember much, if anything. I just kind of knew it was a good movie. So being able to watch it with someone who had never seen it at all and was going in completely fresh and also kind of going through it somewhat, you know, fresh again was really cool. Um, not something I get to do often. And it, you know, this is just such a great movie. Um, you know, Sean Penn does such a fabulous job in this. Tim Robbins, again, you know, both Oscar winners for this, did fantastic jobs. Um, you know, Kevin Bacon played Kevin Bacon. That's fine. Um, but, man, like, what a what a great way to build up a suspenseful and uh, just really great portrayal of misdirection uh, for a mystery thriller like this. Um, all around, just really well made, really effective in its goal and uh, its message. Yeah, I think this is. I didn't. I don't have too many notes on this one um, because you. I, I was just. Yeah, I was just enjoying watching it. Really. Um, but one of my one of my very few notes is that this movie does just a great job with giving each story its time. Mm. keeping each side of things minimal and allowing each of them to be genuinely interesting. Like there's no point at which it switches to one of the, and it, it, it does more than cover just the, the three main characters. It, it covers side characters doing their side character business. Um, but, you know, by and, I'm going to focus on those three characters because it's easiest. Anytime it switches to any of them to go into what the next chapter of their part of this story is, it is a captivating watch. You are genuinely yeah. interested and invested in what is going to happen next. And it slowly works itself. It does a great job of slowly working itself towards where, you know, the reveal of the whodunit without ever being boring or slow or you feeling as though you weren't continuously getting more information. Because that's the hard part. And that's something I really didn't think of when I was watching it, but you are completely spot on with, they did do a fabulous job with making each one of these storylines fully fledged out, fully, um, fully something that you want to invest in. Not, you know, you are invested in all of them completely, but you also want to be invested in each of them. You know, Kevin Bacon, I would say is, uh, you know, the least impactful of the three main characters just because... Very easily. Yeah, I mean, again, nothing against Kevin Bacon, but the reason for, you know, the problems he's facing in the movie are kind of kept completely separate from the rest of, like, his side story is completely isolated from the rest of the characters in the film. Um, but again, he's also kind of meant to be the, he's the cop. Like he's not really meant to, I don't know. Like he, he has his role in this and it's not to be a sob story or whatever. It's to solve the case. Right. I, I was going to say that. I think that's why his character 
or what what makes his storyline interesting. You know, Sean Penn has the whole grieving of his daughter as well as the shady underdealings of like trying to launch his own investigation with the Savage Brothers. Uh, mm. Tim Robbins uh, has the whole mystery of like, why are you being so shady? Why does your story keep changing with that cut on your stomach? You know, um, adding in the misdirect. And then Kevin Bacon's is interesting just because he's he's the guy solving the mystery. Like he is feeding you the information that is pushing the movie along further. So even though his character isn't particularly interesting, and I really didn't give a shit about his whole like no. wife leaving him thing. Um, that really that, seemed like something that was thrown in after they started production. It it I, it definitely it feels like it was probably part of the book. Um, and it feels like Kevin Bacon's character very reasonably could have had more emotional depth to it, but Kevin Bacon wasn't bringing that. And maybe that that part of it where what's his wife's name? Laura or something like that. Um, yeah, like she, Laura. Something like that. He, like those phone, those phone calls might have been more impactful if he had the emotional depth as an actor to bring that to it. And he just mm. doesn't. He's not bad. Like I, I think uh, anyone who knows who Kevin Bacon is as an actor is not going to sit there and tell you he's a bad actor. He's not a bad actor. No, but I don't no. think he's going to bring you enough just raw emotion that you're going to get too much out of those phone calls. Right. At the end of the day, he is still Kevin Bacon. Right. Uh, but again, he his story is interesting because it advances the plot. And I love how wildly disparate all three of these characters are, too. Mm-hmm. It, I think it brings... Because, you know, you got Sean Penn, who's a fucking wild man throughout this. You know? he's He is constantly switching between quiet rage and loud rage. Those are the two stations Sean Sean Penn stage, uh, train stops at. Um, no point does the rage ever stop. No, no. It just it just changes volume, really. Uh, Tim Robbins is a wonderful, like dark and aloof, um, mm-hmm. showing he's like a, seems like a really great father, as well as just being like sad and mopey the whole time. And then I Kevin Bacon. Oh, I know he's so good in this. Um, and then t- you know Kevin Bacon plays a cop. Uh, but see, the thing is, like, by having all three of these characters be so central to the film, where they're basically all leading characters, the fact that they're all relatively speaking—I'm going to say one-dimensional, but I don't mean it in a negative way. I'll say limited. Then they're, they're all focused. relatively, yeah, yeah. Focus is a good term too. Uh, probably be- the best of, the, of anything I said. Um, the fact that they're all pretty like focused in on the type of character that they are and they don't shift too far from that I think is way mm, it, it's a lot better of a depiction you don't get bored of it you don't get stale it doesn't feel like these characters are one dimensional or focused because you're constantly shifting between them and the stark contrasts between them gives you like a fuller sense of character from the film you know what right. I mean mm-hmm. completely yeah. So um, when yeah. you watched this, did you figure out who it was? Um, so when Brendan Harris, uh, Katie's boyfriend, 
goes and finds the gun holster above the ceiling. That's when it clicked for me, partially being because, again, I've seen this movie before and was like, oh, right, it's those two. Um, and then immediately I realized, oh, no, it wasn't just the brother. It was the brother and his friend. So partially, um, you know, I don't think I ever really did, you know, truthfully figure it out the first time I watched. I think that was very much a, a jump out as a surprise type deal. Um, I will say watching with Quinn, like she was like laying down. And then as soon as that all started kicking off and all these twists started, she was like jumped up, sitting up straight, like leaning into it. Then like laying forward, like inches from the TV, not inches, but you know what I mean? Just like trying to like piece this together and like couldn't figure it out. And then just looking back every 10 seconds with like her jaw on the floor, like what? Like it's them. No, it's him. What? It's what? Just like truly shocked. And it was like, wow, this this really is so well done. Like twist wise, they are just setting you up to believe that it's Tim Robbins for the entire story. They give you the background, the reasoning, you know, enough motive. Just everything you see makes you want to believe that. And you they don't like say like, oh, he did it. There's no admission. There's nothing like they don't fake you out by like showing you a fake flashback scene of him doing it. It's just like, okay, everyone is suspicious of him with good reason. And God, everything makes you want to say it's him. And I think that's at least in this capacity, in this situation, that worked really well um in my mind and i just i'm very happy watching it a second time kept that feeling genuine all right so so let's unpack everything a little bit further then let's 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 actually start at the beginning um because one of my other very few notes is um the the i call it the prologue to the to the film um that whole beginning segment with with dave getting getting took huh uh, yeah, I was just saying, yeah, it makes sense. Oh, okay. Sorry. Uh, Again, just kind of feeling it talkative right now. I gotcha. Uh, the, the, yeah, that whole prologue where, where Dave gets took by by uh, Mr. Pretend Cop and and uh, someone who would later get busted in the movie Spotlight. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what it It's such a great compact first, like, eight minutes. Because it moves, it doesn't even really move that quickly. It just, it just, you don't know anything. You don't know what's happening. No. It starts off with kids being kids in like the 70s, 80s in Boston. And uh, it just kind of like sets a mood. And yeah, absolutely. You know, this is a mystery movie, or at least you know something's a little bit askew because, like, the, again, the, the tone of the film kind of starts right off with that. You know, it's got kind of that that dr- drama feel to it with the the color grading and and the, the 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 general silence of the film um and to have that set this unknown stage for what will eventually be the re- one part of the reveal for the end of the film um is amazing 
it it it's just it's such a great way to start because it doesn't really set up anything Mm-mm. until you get to the end, and it doesn't feel out of place in the absolute slightest. It feels perfect. Well, I think it sets up like throughout the story before you know we get to the end section. It sets up the, I think it sets up Dave's character well. Right. So it's such we a know... lot character development wise. I'm sorry. Sorry, sorry. I said you're right. You're right. It does set up a lot character development wise. Um, but yeah, other than that, it's other than his struggles with it that you're seeing and the you know offhand comment I think once or twice throughout the film of like, what if it was us? What would be different if it was us in that car and not Dave? Um, it really is just like okay, this. Because, like, you watch it, like, or at least when we watch it, where we watch and break down movies every week, it's like, okay, that's in the film to set this up. That's not necessarily something that we need to be worried about for the future. It's just, okay, that's developmental. That's whatever, this, that. And then it does come back to be such a pivotal part of the story at multiple points. One of the other things I think it also does a good job of setting up, which, again, doesn't really get into it until the end, um, is Dave's general dis... Maybe not distrust, but unease around police. And a big reason why he doesn't go to the police earlier is probably uh, surrounded by this beginning scene, where he gets Mm -hmm. taken by a guy... uh, presenting himself falsely as a police officer. Right. So, like, yes, he... Corwin? Josh, you hear me? Yeah, I hear you now. Yeah, my computer just straight up died. I wasn't paying attention. Oh, fun. Yeah. Um, so I heard you ask your question. I started going to mine. Anything else uh, should worry about that mentioned since then? Wait, what? Like you were asking, you were talking about Dave and, you know, being uneasy around cops and all that. And I started going into it talking about it, but I wasn't sure if you went and said anything else. I didn't. You were just, I think you said, yeah, and, and like you were okay. just about to keep going, and then you cut out. Uh, let's hop back into it. All right. Um, well, you see, you know, Dave and his unease for coming forward by, you know, after his situation with the soon-to-be-known pedophile, um, and doesn't come forward, doesn't say anything, even though he seems to have, by all means, every right to stop that alteration, uh, alteration, altercation, altercation, uh, altercation. Yeah, you know, words are just so hard, man. Um, you know, he did a good deed. He should have 
every right and capability of going to the police and saying this. But again, even though he didn't do anything inherently wrong, his unease and, you know, fear, you could say, of the police or so-called police um, is what keeps him from doing so uh, and is why it ends up being so shady for the entirety of the movie um, until he has that, I guess we'll say, heart-to-heart with Jimmy at the end. That's certainly one way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> um. So then, I forget where I was going with that. Actually, I started the whole last sentence and then lost it, which I think is pretty common for this show. Um, yeah, it happens at least you know four to five times an episode. Yeah, yeah, it does. Uh. Fucking hell, man! I completely forgot where I was going to go with this. Jesus Christ. Uh, now I'm just like um, mad at myself. What was the? Was it still about Jimmy? Was it about Dave? I mean, I don't think so. I guess let's just keep talking about Dave because uh, we're on that subject. Um, so I, I guess this will be a lot easier if we just kind of spoil the ending. Um, which again. This movie came out like 16 years ago. Like, if you have not seen this, it is your fault. Um, also, it's a movie podcast where we discuss all plot points. Obviously, we're going to talk about spoilers. We do it for every movie. I don't know why we need to mention this I guess, specifically. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I always feel guilty not saying it. Uh, anyway, um, so at the end of the movie, we find it. So Dave, throughout the entire film, has been, has been kind of, not even kind of, constantly changing his story about how he showed up back to his house at three o'clock in the morning with a huge slice along his abdomen with his right hand all fucked up and bruised um, on the same night that Jimmy's daughter, Katie, went missing and then ultimately was found dead. Um, And because of that conflict, because here you have Dave who is acting super weird. He clearly had some type of physical altercation that he again keeps changing the story on. And uh, there's a lot of evidence pointing to the fact that Katie's killer was someone that she seems to have probably known. And well, Sean, uh, Jimmy and Dave have known each other since childhood. Uh, it's, it, it doesn't perfectly align to a lot of the details, but it seems to make enough sense that there's a lot of question about what's going on here. And, you know, you get to the end of, of the movie and eventually you get found out that Dave was telling the, the the truth in his final iteration of the story to Jimmy right before Jimmy ultimately kills him, which is that he saw a, a grown man taking advantage sexually of a kid and ripped him out of his car, started beating him up, got cut during the fight and thought he killed him and uh, ultimately thinks he, he did. But, you know, police were saying they couldn't find a body blah 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 blah. eventually the police found a body and jimmy realized he killed dave for no reason and that begs the question why didn't dave go to the police and again i think that's a great job by the beginning of the film mm-hmm. of showing you exactly why he didn't go dave yeah. clearly like the only time dave's ever hostile at all in this movie is when he's in the police station yeah. Oh, yeah, when he's in the uh, interrogation room? Yeah. 
Like that, outside of that, he like, was perfectly docile. Watching it through a second time, like while I did not remember any of like the major plot points or twists or anything, like deep down, like in the back of my head, I'm it's like they keep setting it up to be Dave. I really just don't think it is. I think that's part of it is that like it isn't Dave. Like I I really don't suspect him, even though all information is pointing that way. But that scene of the interrogation room when he gets hostile and he is, you know, outsmarting the police and has all the right answers, it's like, oh, that is setting some seeds of doubt in my own memory. Because now it really seems like Dave is on top, like is the one who did this. And I think that's part of what makes this particular misdirect so effective is it's not that Dave just like, I don't know, was kind of a goofy dude or like went through his own trauma and has a bad experience. Like he also did do something. He did kill a guy. Yeah. Like he has every reason to also be shady. And which is what makes this mm -hmm. misdirect so effective is that, yeah, no, Dave did also kill someone that night. It just so happens it wasn't the person that this movie is directly about. And I, a point that I do just want to talk about is, you know, Sean, you know, Kevin Bacon's character clearly knows that he was paying, you know, Jimmy was paying, I want to say what, like, what was it? $500 a week to the Harris's for killing Ray Harris. Yeah. And then also mentions, Oh, are you going to be paying Celeste Boyle $500 a week? So like he knows he killed Dave. Oh yeah. Or he has that complete, you know, suspicion, even if it may not have the, exact evidence needed why like what uh what is he doing that he's not willing to send his friend away his so-called friend away you know as a police officer that was just kind of that threw me off at the end there well, I think I think first and foremost, he doesn't really have anything that he can really arrest him on as of right now, because as as it, as it stands no at that point of time in the film, yeah, Dave's just missing. Like they don't have a body. There's no there's no evidence that would point to a murder, even though they can talk about it under the guise that um, Jimmy did murder Dave. Like it's 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 all just circumstantial, and in, 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 I would assume anyway, it's all just hypotheticals. It's, it's not one of those things that like really affected the movie to me it's just hmm, that was something that you know jumped out at me but I, I i think the real thing about it is that conversation that they have at the end about about this big loss of innocence you know it feels like we all lost uh um we're all stuck all three of us are our 11 year olds who got taken in the car that day and i think a big part of it is kevin bacon's realization or maybe the the duo's realization that Dave got fucked again. Dave once again got taken out of their lives for something he didn't do wrong. And granted, mm -hmm. Dave likely would have gone to jail or at least like been facing charges for killing that pedophile. But at the same time, like yeah, he probably could have gotten away with some of it. He probably would have gotten a pretty light sentence. Killing a guy for fucking the kid? I don't think even though he instigated the fight. I don't think you're going to see that much time for it. He probably would have been okay. Yeah, um, I mean, like, come on. Like, you see someone getting, you know, mugged great. or murdered or whatever. And, like, oh, no, you beat him up. You instigated the fight. Like, 
Yeah, no one's gonna fucking say that. No one's gonna give you shit for that. Like, shut the fuck yeah, up. That's what you're supposed to do. Yeah, you might see like an obstruction charge for hiding so much evidence, but like that really wouldn't be much of anything. It, I, I I think the real thing is like you know you once again see how how I don't know. I don't want to say like the brutality of man because maybe that's a little bit too abstract, but like at least the idea of not only is is is, is Dave here at the end, um, once again getting taken uh, away from the group, but it's once again for just being at the wrong place at the wrong time, mm-hmm. being what could have been anybody who just circumstantially just got hosed. Yeah. And, you know, like, I want to say, like, I wanted to mention part of it. Like one of my first notes was, you know, Celeste, Dave's wife, like he comes home three in the morning, covered in blood, stab wounds, um, you know, saying he just killed a man. And, you know, her first reaction is like, all right, get it. Like, take that shirt off, babe. I'll take care of him. Like, we'll, we'll fix you up. We'll take care of this. Like, that's such a ride or die situation. And then at the end of the movie, like, oh, you know, uh, I forget Jimmy's wife's name, but she's like, oh, how dare Celeste, you know, say that about her husband and all that and, you know, throw him under the bus. Like, it's like, oh, maybe she isn't ride or die. But at the end of the day, like, she thinks he, by all means, like she has all the evidence points towards Dave killing one of her relatives. Well, I guess not blood relative, but a family member, you know, by all means. And it is just like, that is just a shame with how it worked out because, you know, nobody really in that capacity did anything inherently wrong, you know? It, it if that was me in that situation and I think my significant other killed someone who is essentially family, yeah, I'm not just gonna like cover it up and be like, nah, babe, I married you, you're my wife, you're my husband. This is it. Like I got your back. It doesn't matter that you killed cousin Julie. It's like, well, you kinda have to say something. And it's just a real shame that it it happened to a guy like Dave again, who by all accounts seems like a really good dude. He seems like he's yeah. been a good husband. He clearly seems like he's a good father. Walks his kid to school every day. Plays wiffle ball with him in their very small backyard. Like, mm-hmm. and They're jumping fences. Well, I mean, granted that was a lie, but the act itself may not have been like jumping fences to get balls while his son's at school. Yeah, and and again, it it. What I love about it is, like, if this was a different movie, I could sit here and be like, well, you know, you at least tell your wife, like, that way she can cover for you. But again, I think it just chases back to Dave's immense fear of being taken away by the police because yeah. of this experience. And, you know, without having that setup of that opening scene, you, that, that excuse or that reason wouldn't, wouldn't, be, wouldn't be there to, to cover that spot. And not only does it, does it cover that, that, that question so well, it does so in just such a great way because it adds character depth instead of just being blanket reasoning it's character depth and you know by all means this is a you know word for word textbook case of post-traumatic stress you know there's and you know people talk about it like oh people say oh it has to be you know combat related that's everything else is just fully like shut the fuck up like he spent four days locked in what is essentially a dungeon being 
mistreated to say it in the most kind way possible by people of authority there's some serious trauma involved with that and i could well yeah in a perfect world you would want to you know come forward be honest make sure everything is done you know correctly and lawfully whatever but god it's it's hard not to look at that situation and be like yeah of course i would do something different cuz would you do something different than than who than than dave than dave like oh, if dave you did. were in the situation if you were in his shoes you know in a perfect world sure yeah i would do something different i'd go to the cops and just face my fears but in reality would you oh fuck no fuck no the only thing i could think that 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 dave could have done differently reasonably is is when he's telling sean penn at the end like about how he he killed a pedophile um he could have been like i'll show you where the body is that's exactly um, what i thought at the time too o- only thing you could have done differently and and even then like the chances of sean penn going along with it maybe aren't that great because he is also in an emotionally compromised state um but that's nothing it was it was it would the motivation for sean penn killing dave is also a great part like you don't usually see the bad guys in these types of movies having the motivation for them doing the wrong thing be relatable and like personal like this you know like when you're watching when we watched the departed which came out the same year as this um you know you're not sitting there watching uh uh jack nicholson committing crimes for passion yeah he's doing it for money uh and sean penn you get a real sense of like and he says it at the end he's like i can't believe i'm still killing here killing people and dumping them into this fucking river you know like he does not want to be where he is he doesn't want to be doing this he's doing this because he thinks he's doing the only thing he can do he 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 needs to be a part of the solution for for solving the problem he's having or or, or, uh, finding justice because he's not confident he's going to get it out of the 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 systems in place and and that whole scene at the end with his wife talking about like making sure there's justice for his daughters and his family all that it's just so well done and there's so much we could be talking about with this but i, I do think it would be good if we should start wrapping it up because it looks yeah. like we're like almost uh 40 minutes on just this one movie <laughs> i i will say um i wish the film ended when jimmy and sean were talking in the road and they had that final discussion that final confrontation it um, did drag a little bit at the end because i feel like the scenes that followed while you know they weren't useless like they they did add some things it just with the tone of the movie and where things ended at that point it kind of was just like uh, it didn't fit the situation it sh- it should have ended with that confrontation with that almost lack of closure rather than like okay let's all just show everyone going back to their daily lives like you know facing reality whatever you know i i didn't want to have to have that conversation or have to watch that conversation with jimmy and his wife about like babe i love you because you protect our family and let's fuck because you just killed an innocent man that was one of your 
oldest friends and all that. It's like, ah, uh, that's just, uh, that doesn't add anything for me. I got um, you. And I just, I guess since we are closing up, you know, like I, I made my piece, I gave my summary for everything. I would give this a four and a half as is. I think it would be in discussion for a five if the movie ended there. And it just, that would, I think, be enough to put it over the edge for me to give it that, you know, edge factor, you know, je ne sais quoi, almost. I feel you. I feel I, I, I'm, I'm right on the board of the two. I think I'm going to lean towards the four and a half for no good reason. Um, but this is what's great about this whodunit, because at its core, Ah, maybe not at its core, but it very reasonably is for large parts of it a whodunit. Um, mm. It doesn't matter if you know whodunit, because most yeah. whodunits, when you know whodunit, it's not fun. Right. This is still a really, real. I've seen this movie like probably a fucking dozen times. It's a great right. movie. Oh yeah, I love this movie. <laughs> I know I do. Um, it's it. It was one of those ones that was like it felt like it was always on like TNT or AMC when I was a kid. Mm. Yeah. So I was just like constantly. Anytime I flip past it, I would just leave it on. It's a. This is a great fucking movie. Like you, it. There, there's no reason to not watch this unless uh, you hate Boston accents. Well, no, even then, I hate Boston accents, and I like to love this movie. So, <laughs> yeah. All right, cool. Then, uh, I guess let's move on to our next one. That brings us to uh, 1970s Patton. Uh, it was directed by Franklin J. Schaffner, written by Francis Ford Coppola, Edmund H. North, um, Ladislas La, La Farago, and Omar N. Bradley. It, Omar Bradley wrote this? Do you know who that is? Uh, that's the guy that uh, fucking what? Like, that's the other general in the movie. Oh, so it is. Um, Omar Bradley, for reference, uh, is the last general in the U.S. to be granted the rank of five-star general, general of the army. Um, yeah, like that's uh, that's pretty incredible. I mean, granted, he knew Patton as well as anyone in World War II, um, but I had no idea that he has you know a writing credit for this film, and that's that's spectacular to me. I yeah, love that so, so much. So he he wrote him and uh, Ladislas Farago wrote factual material for the for the story. Um, mm. So Omar and Bradley wrote a I guess a book called A Soldier's Story, um, and Ladislas Farago wrote Ordeal wrote and Triumph. Huh? Um, he wrote like he started writing that book, A Soldier's Story, and then was realized, wow, I'm not a good writer, and some other guy actually wrote the book itself uh well regardless <laughs> yeah it's same you know six and one half dozen of another yeah uh the film stars george c scott carl malden and stephen young um it had an estimated budget of 12 million dollars wow i mean it makes sense i big, believe it yeah. yeah big movie huge the sets and the by all explosion. means you would consider this an epic right in your mind oh that's tough let me come back to that question I, so I can finish everything else out because that sure. is an interesting question. Um, 
Anyway, estimated budget, $12 million. Cumulative worldwide gross, $61.7 million. So certainly a, a success. I uh, The tagline is direct from its sensational reserved seat engagement. Uh, not sure I get that. Um, uh, are you sure that's the uh, tagline? Yeah, that's what it says under tagline, yeah. Sure. For reference, that $12 million budget in 2017, sorry, ni- 1970, would have been a uh, $78 million budget in 2019. So still definitely a big budget, but not like, it's not like a $100 million budget, which we do see nowadays with a lot of blockbusters. Um, yeah, tagline is direct from its sensational reserve seat engagement, which I think is just supposed to be a bunch of military type jargon thrown in there uh, to sound good. And I'm not sure it does. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Continuing on, it won seven Oscars on the back of ten nominations. It won four Best Picture for Frank McCarthy, Best Actor in a Leading Role for George C. Scott, Best Director for Frank J. Schaffner, Best Writing Materials and Screenplay Based on Factual Material or Material Not Previously Published or Produced for Francis Ford Coppola Coppola and Edmund H. North. It won for Best Art Direction, Set Direction for Yuri McCleary, Gil Poron. Parando, Antonio Mateos, and Pierre Louis Tevenet. And one for Best Sound for Douglas O. Williams and Don J. Bassman. One for Best Film Editing for Hugh S. Fowler. It won- and it was nominated, but did not win. For Best Cinematography for Fred J. Ken- Kennecamp. Uh, best Effects, Special Visual Effects for Alex Weldon. And Best Music Original Score for Jerry Goldsmith. Uh, Corbin, this was your pick. Do you want to start or do you want me to start? I'll start, but can you clarify something for me? Um, yes. You said it won the Oscar for Best Sound. Is that the same as, you know, like sound mixing? Uh, I'm not sure that those were different awards at this point in time. Okay. Um, a, lot of, a lot of categories we have today are because of splits from other categories. Right. I just wanted to make sure if there was that distinction at this point. Um, I, I'm doing a, a, a run-through of the Oscars that year to see if I see any other sound-based categories, and so far I do not, but I'll keep looking. Because if that's the case, I would like to argue that that is dumb, because I hated the sound mixing in this. I basically just watched this movie with the remote in my hand, just changing the volume every 15 seconds, because... Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's only sound. Okay. The nominees that year were Patton, Airport, Ryan's Daughter, Woodstock, and Tora Tora Tora. Wow, not a great year for the Oscars, I will say. You don't like Airport and Tora Tora Tora? Not really. Oh, well, you're wrong. Actually, I might need to rewatch Airport. This, I don't think this is the movie I'm thinking it is. Uh, no, it's the movie I'm thinking no, I know it's not an airplane. Um, Toro, Toro, oh man, maybe I Toro, think Toro, I need to Toro rewatch. Like, it's like an okay epic. It's yeah, never mind. I there. actually should rewatch these movies because they don't look as good as I remember them looking. Anyway, anyway, tell me, tell me about the uh, your thoughts on Patton. Um, as someone who is going to be very biased because you know, I've read like three books on. George Patton and I am a World War II military nerd and have been for you know decades at this point. I'm 23, but it's been multiple decades. Um, 
I love this just because I love seeing a portrayal of Patton that's not solely around his egotistical nature. Um, I love that they portray him as both, you know, an egomaniac, which rightfully so he is. I mean, he was all about, you know, he was blood and guts by all means. They have that mentioned in the movie. Um, but they do show, you know, his love for his troops, his understanding of the larger picture and the historical significance <laughs> of the fighting being done. Um, I really love George Scott's portrayal of him. Um, when I think of Patton, I think of this. Uh, I think of, you know, this character to an extent. Um, I think visually it is quite beautiful. Some of the, the landscape shots and just these, uh, they're not like master shots, maybe like establishing shots almost, but like these super wide open, you know, very distant shots of battlefields, landscapes of, you know, the size and scope of these armies clashing together. Um, you know, as far as the narrative aspect of it, you know, it is a, a biopic by all means. So the story falls very close to reality and may not exactly be the most consistently exciting throughout. Um, but I do appreciate the historical accuracy of this. Um, and that gets huge props just because of how easily films, at least nowadays, just kind of say, fuck it, nobody knows it, and nobody's going to look it up anyway to double check. So who cares? Um, but yeah, uh, by all means, I just, I love this movie. I understand it's not perfect, but I just appreciate the hell out of it. I, uh, yeah, man, it's a great fucking movie. This is a, it's a, it's a great fuck. It's, it's two hours and 50 minutes, 52 minutes. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it's a great fucking movie. It's an easy three hours of movie. It is a fun movie. Um, it does a great job showing strategy. Um, mm, yes. as at, but not just strategy in like a cold blooded, like let's play risk kind of way. The, the need like Patton's emotional need to 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 have strategy be embraced and employed, and how pro procedure and authority, while I'm certain he respects both because he is a military man, he also acknowledges at several points throughout the film how they basically just get in his way because what he wants to do sits on a certain timetable. And oh, the yeah. military's timetable is just not fast enough for him. Um, I'll tell you what. I mean, I was going to talk about this later, but I'll let you finish and then go into it. Um, just in that vein, that right. I'm yeah, totally cool with 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 a loop back to it. Um, it it's a great big picture kind of movie because this film could have reasonably been um, an hour shorter if it just focused on any one of the several things it focused on in regards to Patton's life, but mm -hmm. it, it shouldn't be the fact that it gave you everything it did with the amount of time that it did makes this picture whole. And it's perfect in that way. I mean, it's so amazing to see not just all the success, but all the failings 
And again, that aren't necessarily because of his strategy, but are because of the complex in which he must work within the confines of the military apparatus. And the the political nature of having seven different, ten different countries all trying to work together and needing to be more than just an army, but, you know, politicians at the same time. Right. And that ends up becoming a huge plot point because Patton is a very foul-mouthed person. And unfortunately for him, this isn't the fucking 1800s, you know? It's ain't the 800s. This isn't any of the the pre-Christ years wars that he studied in school where you being foul-mouthed didn't matter. In today's, well, quote-unquote today's, this was the 40s, military, you have to present yourself in a certain way in order to be given the reins of a military, of an army. And he consistently was not understanding who he was as a person and that he just didn't feel as though he was capable of doing it, which is commendable in certain respects, but also having to understand that that is what the military wants now, though. You know, Um, this is the reason to to make it a sports analogy. This is a reason we lose a lot. We didn't lose, but why teams moved on from certain managers um, in baseball. You know, there was a point in time when your manager could be a fucking dick, but if they won games, no one cared. And in today's baseball, and we were just talked about it in our other, in our sports podcast, using the numbers. Uh, we just talked about this with football too. Like the era of Bill Belichick style dudes uh, outside of Bill Belichick himself, the Bill Parcells of the world who are con- uh, by all accounts dicks, um, but successful are gone. There's no more of those guys. The only one left is, is, is Bill Belichick. Um, and Sorry for cutting you off, but go ahead. You were you were gone there just because he's Bill Belichick. Yeah, exactly. Like 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 because he wins games, and the second he retires, he, that generation of football coaches is gone, and that's basically who Patton was. And it's great seeing how that didn't just affect his career, but also the people around him. Like he was a controversial figure, and you get to see how that controversy played out throughout the ranks, throughout his his peers, um, with with comments from the press, like it really paints a full broad picture um that i think just benefits the storyline so much mm-hmm. god it's it's so fantastic how well they were able to put all of those aspects into it and you know they didn't just kind of narrow in on one aspect like you said because it would have made it a more concise and you know easy to watch film um they put it all in there because they wanted to show the show what the reality of the situation was. God, I love that. So tell me about that point you wanted to loop back to. Um, yeah. So basically uh, I forget the actual point you were saying, but um, you know, the four major generals that are portrayed in this film, uh, George Patton, Omar Bradley, the two Americans, um, Bernard Montgomery, who was the small English fellow who wore shorts, uh, gaudy mustache, and uh, usually a big hat. Um, and then Erwin Rummel, who was the German counterpart to Patton. Um, as you might imagine, when it comes to uh, men, especially military men who are in command of thousands upon thousands of troops at such a large scale and it's you know them fighting head to head with these other generals 
ego is such a large part of it, um, especially for Rummel, Montgomery, and Patton. These guys were at each other's throats, just not, you know, fighting physically per se, although, you know, Rummel fought the other three. Um, they always wanted to come out on top, both on the battlefield and, you know, in the eyes of their peers. Um, and that was the reason why we saw Omar Bradley basically leapfrog Patton in seniority over the course of the film was because he was not an egotistical general. He was a political, even keeled, you know, he was logical with the way he did things and understood the political aspect of having several different countries fighting together to, you know, take over a continent that was under, you know, German control that they lost. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, Patton wanted the glory for himself against, you know, Montgomery. Montgomery wanted, you know, all of that on his own shoulders because he felt it should be the British who um, won the war and all of that. And, you know, Rummel was the Germans' best. By all means, you know, he is considered by many contemporary historians to be strategically the best, uh, you know, tactical general in the war, um, you know, either of whom, you know, Rummel or Patton could have single-handedly almost during their offensive crippled the other side and, you know, almost assuredly won the war for one side if it wasn't for the issues at hand where they couldn't get it done because of, you know, oils and supplies and basically the logistics of having a large-scale war overseas, you know, across hundreds and hundreds of miles and dozens of countries. Um, so trying to figure out where I was going with this, just um, do you remember what the initial point was meant to be? Because I kind of have lost track trying to get all that information out there. I, I was just on, I was just on for the ride, man. <laughs> yeah. So basically it's just all these guys facing off against each other, you know, Patton, Bradley and Montgomery all working together, but all wanting to win themselves. Bradley less so, more of a uh, team player, if you will. Um, and then all of them basically struggling massively because of the lack of uh, supplies and just lack of all the logistics uh and supply lines that are difficult to have in wartime so they talk about that enough for me to be a very happy camper watching this movie um and it, it was really cool to see all of those things mentioned and god it was just such an enjoyable time to watch just like knowing the history already like knowing the situation and the relationships between all these guys it was really cool to watch this again for the first time in such a long time and like being able to see it and say wow like this is true to the story this is true to true to reality and 
you know, informative as it is entertaining. So in terms of plot, it's basically just following the story of Patton throughout World War II. So um, granted, it's a lot more in-depth than if you just took like, you know, the last if the last time you took a World War II history class was your high school American U.S. history class, then you're, you're going to learn more things. But I think we the general understanding of the scope of how World War II went. Uh, so let's talk about the character of Patton because that is really the dominating force of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, when he, when he comes into, into command of, of the, of the third army and he, he, he goes into the barracks and it's a fucking mess. You know, everyone's just, uh, that is the seventh army at that point. That's the seventh army. All right. Yes. My bad. The third Sorry. was a hero. It, Josh. Oh, uh, that's right. That's right. Why, this is the African why would yeah. anyone need to know the difference? Let's be real. Yeah. Because they want to. Uh, regardless, when he so when he gets into the barracks of the Seventh Army and and it's, and it's like a mess, you get this real crackdown kind of thing happening. He's, you know, giving everybody shit. He's taking down uh, pinup girl posters. Uh, I thought it was hilarious when he told the one dude who was sleeping on the floor to get back down so he could sleep because he was the only one who knew what he was doing. Uh, that was funny. But regardless, you get this this sense. You know, he's giving everyone shit. He's closing the mess hall. At, uh, he's not admitting anybody into the mess hall after six fifteen, since they open at six, and everyone should be reporting to the mess hall at six. So, allowing people to stroll in at seven forty-five ain't cool anymore. Uh, and it's a very authoritative environment, which feels kind of like what you'd expect from the military. But I guess is being really introduced to this unit um, as they clearly did not have it prior. Um, and, you know, this is part of, I guess, an introduction as to who Patton is going to be throughout the entirety of this that ultimately will we'll reach, uh, I guess you could say, a boiling point with the slapping of an officer, but we'll, uh, or not an officer, but uh, of, of, a, of a serviceman. But we'll, we'll get there later. What do you think of, of this style of leadership as it's portrayed? Because for I'll let you answer that question in one second. Because <laughs> um, it's like... It's true to life, so obviously we're not going to sit there and be like, you know, he wouldn't have done that. He, of course he would. He did. This is what happened. Um, and, you know, it's different time. It's it's like the late 30s, early 40s. But uh, sensibilities, I think, around leadership have changed so drastically mm-hmm. um, that seeing some of it, not all of it, but seeing some of it is is rather jarring just because it's just not what you would expect anymore. Um, right. So but it like, worked. I feel like the context of the situation is what's most important. Um, you know, slapping of the soldier. Uh, now that I think about it, I want to say that was after. Like, I forget when it was. I f- don't remember it being the first time he showed up. But like when he is going through, tearing pictures off the wall, all of that. Um, I do know that. You know, the Battle of Kasserine Pass, which is how the movie opens, that was the first that was the first battle between, you know, the American army and the German army during the Second World War. Um, and at this point, you know, in 1942, you know, going into the war, like the U.S. Army was not what you think of the U.S. Army in World War Two or today. It, it was like 189,000 total troops, which, you know, by all means, got up to four, five, six million 
total during the peak of the war. So, you know, comparatively, it is so green, inexperienced, you know, the officers and generals who, you know, fought in World War One. sure, they have experience. But again, that was a very different war. The soldiers themselves had little training and whatnot. It, it was so different than what you would, you know, stereotypically think of with the U.S. Army. They brought in Patton because of how badly we lost that first battle. It was by all means a major embarrassment um and it the issue was you know complete lack of the military discipline that is so famously part of being in the military you know discipline is above all one of the most important aspects because that's how you maintain a force capable of fighting in an army um so while sure, like it's not everyone's cup of tea, the way he handled the situation. And you would say, oh, you know, that's so harsh. Like they didn't deserve that kind of treatment or whatever. Like, no, like this isn't a job where like you go in, have your morning coffee, take a shit on company time, whatever. Like this is a major conflict where there are no, there is no leeway. There is no you know, excuses, like it needs to be done and it needs to be done right the first time or, you know, people die. Like it's, it was necessary for Patton to have that kind of style. And it was by all means, extremely effective. Um, yeah, I, I, I think the beginning with going through the barracks and instigating a very tight fisted, uh, level of control mattered a lot it was world war ii it, it the, you're in an active military campaign it is literally life or death right um so and, and again the things he did were definitely like he did them very harshly but none of them are outlandish yet you know right. like at, telling everybody hey mess hall opens at six be here at six we're closing it down at six fifteen. that is tight-fisted it's not ridiculous like being awake at being in eating breakfast at 6 a.m. when you're in the military, I think is something you probably just should have assumed from joining the military um, right. or being drafted. Pick your vernacular. Uh, same thing with like not leaving personal effects up, especially in a place where you're constantly going to have to be moving on from since this is an area in which we are, you're trying to advance territory. Like that also makes sense. And while he did it in a gruff way by literally beating it down, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Point across. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So, that point, you know, you and and again, they're so slovenly and and disconcerted with 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 the effort at hand that seeing it, I think every everyone understands that level of aggressiveness. Mm -hmm. When it gets to the to to the soldier, he slaps though in the um in the medical tent though. That's a point I think he. Because because we 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 meet a few different crossroads at that scene. Mm -hmm. um, for one, we are at the intersection of physical pain versus emotional pain, like mental strife, and obviously something that's just not dealt with in the forties. You know, this is not something you're going to get a lot out of in the forties. Um, 
but is still a major issue. You also get this point where it's like, not, it wasn't just Patton in that tent. Like, like Carl Malone was also there. Or Carl Malden was also there uh, playing. <laughs> what's his name again? I can't help but picture Carl Malone standing in that tent in like his fucking Utah Jazz uniform. Just sorry, that's just a perfect uh, Freudian slip for the situation. Uh, Thank you. Carl Malden played uh, Omar Bradley. I also would love to see Carl Malone be like, damn, I just play basketball. <laughs> you know, need for me to be here. Uh, Listen, kid, anyway. I bust my balls up and down the court every single night. Are you going for an airplane thing? Yeah. Yeah, like that. Um, and it, it this is a point where it really derails, to to some extent, his, his military career. Because as we talked about a little bit previous, like, there's this is a big shift in how military personnel interact with the public. And it's starting to require something of a more politician-like um, presentation of oneself, mm-hmm. which this is a huge failing of, if that's what you're trying to go for. Um, and that plus, in addition, and that, this isn't to say he did what he was trying to do was wrong, because I think we've all seen people need to be told you're stronger than this. You're better than this. Don't, don't, uh, don't mope, like go out there and, and, and be better. Like you have it within you to be better. Mm -hmm. The person sitting here moping on, on this, this cot isn't who you are. And we all know it. You go out there and you do what you got to do because this person isn't you. Everyone can understand that general sentiment. Uh, he went way farther than that. He was additionally saying, like, don't make these people who are actually hurt look at your stupid ass. Um, mm-hmm. and, and he was as aggressive with it as he was aggressive with, like, beating down the pinup poster, which this isn't how you do it. Um, again, it's an interesting crossroads because Patton's tough style and demeanor is effective. It worked. And if you're looking at this from a point of brute efficiency, he is right. If you're looking at this from a point of how do you handle actual human beings, even though you're in the midst of literal war, he's not right. But you have to then question what your value is here. And it is an odd line to toe, which is one of the starkest contrasts you'll see between Patton and Bradley. Um mm-hmm. So tell me what you think of the slapping. It's something I'm incredibly torn on. Um, because by all means, I'm sure, I'm sure there are better ways that you could have motivated that one individual and basically gotten him to return to the front lines, return to his unit and fight. At the same time, this is still a point where there is no room for excuses. There is no room for leeway. This is important enough of a situation, you know, being a soldier fighting in an active war zone, you really can't have someone, you know, you can't have that kind of mindset be left unchecked in a group of soldiers because it, it spreads like a, like a virus. Um, 
And I will say, you know, things have changed drastically where all of these units have, you know, um, mental, not mental health, but you know, almost psychiatrist officers, you know, in the intelligence unit, intelligence units, they have these guys who are trained to deal with this and are capable of dealing with this in a way that George Patton was not quite fit for. Um, and that's still why I'm torn because yes, it was by all means, I don't want to say necessary to physically strike him, but it was necessary to set that precedent that this isn't something that will be accepted. Um, we can't allow this to happen amongst, you know, the troops, especially this early on in the war or, you know, at this point. So it's hard. You know, I, I definitely don't believe that the, uh, the treatment that Patton got um, from the rest of, you know, the officers, the rest of the higher ups, the rest of, you know, public citizens in the U.S., he didn't deserve that, and by all means, he should have been a a much larger force after you know the Italy campaign, you know, heading into Europe. Um, granted, he did play a a very vital role while he was sidelined, but at the end of the day, he is one of, if not amongst the top talented generals in the Allies. Um, you know, uh, I'm fucking up vocab here, but, you know, he was Allied one of the best, if not the best, tactically for what he did um, and should have been a part of it. Granted, I don't know how much they go into it, but they basically had him stay in Europe, stay in England in the lead up to the Normandy D-Day invasion uh, with a fake army of fake units, inflatable vehicles and stuff pretending to be a full-fledged army to invade at a different point to confuse the Germans and prevent them from going all out in Normandy to fight the invasion force. So it was important to have someone with the notoriety of Patton doing that. It's just hard, you know, so many years later to nitpick these kind of decisions and, you know, see how things would be different, would have worked better because it's impossible from our perspective to know. Um, but Plus, it's not I, going to be questioned or criticized as heavily because at the end of the day, the Allied forces won the war. Right. And, you know, I, I would not, you know, be one of the people up in arms against him for doing what he did because I do, you know, agree that it was necessary to some extent, but I will wholeheartedly acknowledge that there were better ways to deal with it that just were not well known at the time. And that's why we should be glad that things have changed since then. But yeah, it's, it's really hard to give you that clear black or white answer on the, on the matter. Yeah. I, I think if I could step inside the, mo the, the, the mind of Patton for you in the only place I think I would be remotely capable of doing so, which is the emotional side, because Lord knows I can't comment on his military strategy. Um, based on on both the slap and 
the killing of the mules. Patton seems to focus very heavily on just efficiency. There is an urgency with what he's doing, which he is right about. Right. He is right that to have able-bodied men, not maybe necessarily able-minded at the moment, but able-bodied men crowding up the first aid tent when you are in an active kind of combat area mm-hmm. is probably not for the best. Just, right. just straight up logistically speaking. And that's the that's his role. You know, he is at that point a three-star brigadier general, major general, I believe. I forget the actual terms. Um, he shouldn't be worried with the individual aspect, like the individual, you know, mindset of small unit soldiers. He needs to be worried about, okay, how is my army fighting the Germans? How is this working? All this, 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 and this, you know, and he right. needs to get things done. That's what he needs to be focused on. And by all means, he's right, you know. Yeah, so I'm and glad you brought up the the donkey situation because it's the same thing. What like he is he exactly same thing. Two donkeys, sure. Uh, yes, it's brutal and you know probably not perfectly fair or optimal for the farmer who is donkeys they were. But at the same time, you have human lives that are being lost because this column of troops and this column of vehicles being held up and is under fire, people are dying. Guess what? The lives of two mules, two farm animals, do not come close with the value of those actual human beings, um, especially when it comes to, you know, trying to have a, you know, effective fighting force. So, sure, it's not the most PC or perfect uh, idea of this, you know, to the American public, but guess what? It's necessary. And yeah, exactly. And that's, I think, the the real line that Patton continuously toes throughout the film is that. Well, and again, real life. This is a pretty true to life movie from everything we're supposed to understand. Um, he doesn't care what it takes, as long as the military, the greater military effort is as successful as it possibly can be. Right. And, and, and it goes, and it also extends into just his bad politicking later on in the film when he's talking about uh, the Normandy invasion and like how he has his own plans for it. And, and the, I forget which um, general or, or commanding officer that he was talking to at the time, the guy was just like, basically, he was like, Patton, shut the fuck up. Like, this is nothing to, like, you don't get to have a say in this. Like, like you're, you're. I'm pretty sure that was Bradley, just to. Was it Bradley? I believe so. I don't know why I thought it was the other guy. Uh, Car- Carver? Um, oh, I forget his name. Alexander, maybe? He was one of the, the higher ups. Yeah, I don't remember either. Doesn't Again, matter. There's so many that. They, oh god so many yeah. but point being like here he is like he's being told like we need to reduce your role like you're 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 under a lot of heat right now like you're you're kind of a uh uh toxic in 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 a in like a army social sphere kind of thing mm-hmm. and he's like all right but i got these plans for normandy like you're gonna kill a lot of troops that don't need to die if you, if you just 
but but if you follow my plan, you wouldn't. He goes like that's like, and you know what? Maybe he's fucking right. Like we'll never know, but like may- maybe he was right. Maybe the Normandy invasion would have been way smoother if Patton had orchestrated it. But the problem is they that he really couldn't... couldn't have got any smoother than it was. But I get your point. You know, we we right. don't know because we can't. And the reason we can't know is because Patton never was able to separate the strategy and efficiency from the human side of things. Mm-hmm. And as his career progressed, as time marched forward, the human side of things gained a bigger and bigger role. Him yeah. slapping a soldier in the Civil War wouldn't have fucking mattered. No. In the fucking slightest. Him slapping a soldier in 1941, or whatever year it was, apparently mattered a lot. Yeah. And he never and- got it. Yeah, it's a shame because, you know, you see it once he is put, you know, in charge of, you know, the third army at that point. Um, Again, now I'm second guessing the actual, you know, numerical units of, you know, that he commanded throughout. Um, But, you know, he was, by all means, the most effective general in Europe during the Second World War. you know, if they talk about this, you know, where they basically halt him at some point, um, you know, from, you know, his march across France and uh, almost into Germany, by all means, he thought he could end the war by Christmas if they gave him the supplies um, to do so, to keep continuing on with his attack. And, you know, as much as I have read over the years, I tend to agree with him that, you know, maybe not end the war, but goddamn, like we would have been in a much better situation, uh, you know, territorially, if uh, he was allowed to continue instead of um, pulling back and having Market Garden, you know, Operation Market Garden being what they went with. Uh, but that that's a whole nother story to get into. Um, yeah, that's a, that's 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 for our our new podcast, Juicing the Battlefield. Uh, that, there actually is a film on my list regarding that. Um, a Bridge Too Far, Sean Connery's film, Michael Caine. Um, I actually don't think I've seen that one. I actually haven't either. That's why I put it on the list. I've seen parts of it, but not the whole thing. But yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. Again, it's just the political nature of this war specifically is what did him in. That's just the way it is, you know? Yeah. Um, so a, a fun fact, the, 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 the pistols, the, sorry, the, uh, yeah, yeah, the pistols that George C. Scott is, is wearing in his famous opening speech, which is, mm-hmm. oh, God, it, it gets you ready that. for the movie right away. Yeah, oh, it's yeah. got one of my favorite lines in films anywhere. No dumb bastard won a war dying for his country. He wanted making other dumb bastards die for their country, which is hilarious. It was an actual patent quote. Yeah, and the the revolvers that George C. Scott is wearing in that scene are Patton's actual revolvers. I love that so much. Yeah. Oh. Um. 
He. I, I, I wish I went on IMDb and looked through all like the uh, the facts and you know trivia stuff about it because that would have been pretty cool. Oh, for sure. I'm sure there's plenty there. Um. So the, the film itself really just again I think I said it earlier. He, it, it follows this Patton's campaign during World War II. And the main struggle is the one that, that we gave. So it feels silly because this is a three hour long movie. Um, I don't really have any other notes outside of what we already talked about. Um, so is there anything else that is that, that you have that you'd want to bring up before we, we kind of, I guess, get, uh, pick next week's v- films and move on? Yeah. So um, when you watch the film, you know, without, a, you know, implicating yourself of any wrongdoing, how did you watch the film? What was your the media of choice? Um, HBO Max, I think. Oh, really? Was it on streaming? Or, or uh, no, it might have been Amazon Prime. One of the two. Um, I, I, yeah, I watched it that way. Why? You did stream it. Yeah, I streamed it. Okay. Um, I rented the movie because I couldn't find it streaming anywhere, and it was just annoying me, and I was just like. I, rented I it from where? Deal with this. It was three dollars. I'm just gonna rent it and just say fuck it. Um, rented from which, where? Uh, just through the cable company my parents have. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, for all the German scenes, they did not have subtitles, and when I put on closed captioning, it said, "You know, speaking German." Did really? you have subtitles for that? Because I, it, I did. Really? So you know what the Germans were saying? Yeah. Okay, because that really pissed me off. It's like, why Wait, would you yeah, have these crazy. scenes in the movie if you're not going to tell us what they are saying? Wait, no, that's actually even crazier than I think you're letting on because this was a film, and I mean that in a, in like a physical sense, film. I would have right. naturally assumed that, that the subtitles were on the film. And right. if they were to not be there, I would have assumed you'd have to digitally remove them. Like it's crazy that that's the because this was this is a movie made for American audiences, you know, especially in the time period in which this came out in the seventies. Like, like there's no way that the the subtitles for the German speaking scenes were not hard coded into the actual pieces of film that were this film. And that's what drove me crazy was because I don't remember having to deal with this the first time I watched the movie, the film, whatever. And it's like, like, how could this not be like, this isn't like a torrent that I downloaded that just didn't have it included, didn't have a subtitle file. Like I paid money to watch this movie from a like my cable company and they did not include those subtitles. Yeah, that's just straight up maddening. That's crazy. And I like part of me wanted to like go back and like see if like a different format would have it, but I just paid money for this and didn't want to like waste that. Yeah, you're gonna get your money's worth. Right. So I suffered through and annoyed me. I tried, like, I went back and like re-listened. I took like two years of German in high school, so like. I thought I'd be able to like attempt to piece it together. Um, and like through the context that I already knew and like, I knew who the generals were that were in that like conversation together. Like 
yeah, I could kind of piece together the grand idea of what they were probably talking about, but at the same time, it's like fucking annoying as hell not having that. Yeah, seriously. I that, but, sorry, buddy. Any yeah. any other notes? Again, watched the movie before, so it didn't really affect it too much. Um, yeah, um, that first battle that Patton fights against, you know, the tank division where he ambushes them and, uh, you know, is super effective in defeating that army for the first time. And he's like, yeah, I read it straight out of his book. He, he did actually get that entire strategy out of Rummel's book on strategy that he wrote prior to the war. And the, you know, since he was in Normandy at the time, I believe, or whatever, like he was just sick and out of work. Um, the guy who was there, like leading against him, was like, Yeah, no, I'll just use the strategy that he wrote about. Like, that works for me. And it was just like a textbook case of just playing by the textbook and not knowing to or not being able to switch anything up. Yeah, that was a, yeah, not only was it cool, it was also fucking hilarious. Yeah. Also, a fun fact about Erwin Rummel, uh, that German general, he was a super anti-Hitler. And it's been, you know, it has never been truly confirmed, but like, it's been theorized and rumored and whatnot that he was one of the guys who was a part of the plot to overthrow Hitler at one point. Interesting. Yeah, there you go. Any other points but, for yeah. the Um No, that's that's pretty much it for me. All right, well, then again, I, I guess let's get into ratings and reviews. Do you want to go first or second? Um, I'll go second. No, I'll All go right. first. Otherwise, I'll just ramble on about history and shit. All right. Um, for years. Um, man, I just, again, the history of it, I love it very true to form, very true to reality and what actually happened. Love knowing that Omar Bradley was a part of it as essentially the fact checker checker, and uh, was a part of the writing team. Um, you know, underrated uh, in the beauty of some of the shots, wonderful acting by all of those key actors, uh, essentially George C. George C. Scott as a whole did such a tremendous job um uh so happy with the ability to portray this as a wide scope of the situation and not focusing in on one minor incident or aspect of Patton's life um so overall truly love it um but at the same time I I really only want to give this a 4 out of 5 Fair. I, I, I'm going to give it a four and a half. I can't think of a good reason not to give it a five, but again, the intangibles we've talked about so so frequently. This this is this is just such a such a good such a good movie, and it, it's it's got to be one of the best movies you can find in 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 its time in its length range. You know, there's no, yeah. Is this an epic? Oh shit! Uh, mm, I don't I think it is. Say yes. I don't think it is. Okay. Your reasoning, sir? I don't think it covers enough time. Mm. I think it's... Would you consider Lawrence of Arabia an epic? Yes. But it covers a much longer period of time. 
it covers the same exact amount of time. Wait, does it really? Yeah, Lawrence of Arabia oh, only goes over like three years, right? Oh my god, actually, I think, yeah, you're right. It this feels is... like it covers a lot more. I'll yeah. tell you that. Oh, I, I believe it, but this is also a, a three-year span. Yeah, because I guess Lawrence 40... died like during well, the war, didn't he? Yeah, I guess this would be four years. I don't think he died during the war. I think he ended up becoming a uh, an advisor. Shortly thereafter. In, right, in, you know, I think Turkey or whatever, you know, Egypt, whatever country he ended up, like, settling in. Um, but I don't think he died during the war. By all means, I, I think I think he died like very shortly after. It was it was. I think it, I'd have to look it up. No, I'm, I don't. I'm, I'm not I'm doing it. Up right now. All right. Um. Damn, because in my mind, Lawrence Arabia isn't epic. I don't have a good reason. Maybe it's the. Maybe it's the sets. Maybe it's, maybe it's a lot it's more. Essentially, an hour longer as well. It it is much longer. The four hour movie. I don't know. For some reason, and maybe this is another just intangible thing, it feels like the scope of the film or 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 the amount of set design that's in it has more of an epic vibe, whereas Patton feels more contained. But at the same time, like they're both focused on individuals during World War II in relatively speaking similar areas for a lot of it. Well, I don't Lawrence know of, why Lawrence of, the, Lawrence of Arabia was World War One. Well, it was World War One. Wait, it was? I thought I really mm -hmm. thought it was World War II. Wow. Yeah, no, the, the Ottoman Empire uh, was dissolved after uh, World War One. Oh, that's right. That makes sense. I need to rewatch Lawrence of Arabia, apparently. Um, I I don't think this is an epic. I don't have a good reason why then. I don't I don't, I don't think this is an epic. You know what? I it's not a, a huge, impactful uh what am I trying to say? It it will not affect Decision? my Branding? opinion of the film, you know. Nor should it. Uh, all right, then I guess let's pick next week's movies. All right. You want me to ahead. start? Or you want to? All right. I'll start. Well, do you, um, you have yours picked? I out? I do have it all picked out. Uh, as as is the the norm, I had to panic pick it right before the show because I forgot. Um, <laughs> we're going international again, my friend. Oh boy! Canadian, uh, so it's still in English. Oh wait, damn! No, I wouldn't pick a Canadian movie now because it's a really good Canadian movie that I meant to pick. Oh damn! I'll pick it next week. I'm going to write it down so I remember. Uh, but I am going to stick with my original pick. I am going with uh, 1948's Bicycle Thieves. Ooh, okay. Have you I've ever seen it? it? I've never seen it. I think you're going to like it. Okay. What, I feel what good language? about that. What, uh, what Italian. 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 You do love Italian film. They're good at what they do. Um, all right. Uh, I am going with, well, my favorite film of all time, uh, Apocalypse Now. Um, specifically the final cut. Final. <laughs> got to cut that. Uh, wow. <laughs> the final wow. cut. <laughs> oh, man. That's, that's real. That uh, is yeah, I probably should. <laughs> that's really funny. Um, but yeah, so Apocalypse Now, Final Cut, uh, which was just released, I, I want to say in the last year or so. Um, basically, they just uh, took out some shit that is really boring. I think, I personally think it's my favorite of like the three or four cuts that they have of it. Uh, they also revamped the coloring 
and it looks significantly better in my mind. Uh, the colors uh, just pop. It's beautiful. Um, so I'm really excited to watch it again. All right. Well, we have those locked in. The 1948 Bicycle Thieves and the recent release of the final cut of the 1972 film Apocalypse Now? 74? Yes. I want to say 72. Actually, I want to say it's later now. I want to say it's like 76. Because 72 is Godfather Part 2, I think. Was it? See, this is the problem with Apocalypse Now is that they've... 79. 79? Yeah, because the the thing about Apocalypse Now that makes it so tough to 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 grasp what year it was released is that there's like nine versions of it, yeah. which is why I appreciate you being specific with the cut you wanted us to to go find because like there are there it or at least it feels like there's like six different versions of this movie out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. it's, it's 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 pretty crazy. So anyway, 1979's Apocalypse Now, 1948's Bicycle Thieves. Um, all right, Corwin, anything else before we go? Um, yeah, you know, you heard me drone on a lot talking about Patton this week. I hope you're fucking ready for next week because you better believe I'm droning on about Apocalypse Now for as long as I can. Oh, you bet! You best prepare yourselves for us to jerk Marlon Brando off harder than you thought possible. It's our first Brando podcast, and I am excited for Brando. Is it really? Yeah, we haven't. Well, we're only like three weeks into this, man. So yeah. Oh, that's true. I was lumped in the uh, the uh, previous podcast episodes. Right, which, speaking of which, if you would like to check out some sports stats from, once again, the two of us, check out Juicing the Numbers. Um, again, available where podcasts are sold. <laughs> uh, if you want to follow the show on Twitter, you can do so at, I was about to say, fucking Juicing Pod, I forgot. Um, uh, if you want to follow the show, you can do so at Big Screen Juice on Twitter. And if you want to hit us up via email, you can do so at uh, Juicing the Big Screen at gmail.com. And we will see you all next week. Bye.